Hello, and welcome to Farmerama, where in the Northern Hemisphere we've just observed the summer solstice for the eighth time as Farmerama. First up this month, we meet two people who are building a community group to celebrate an earth-based connection between their religion and the land. We learn about the success of a mentoring program for farmers, and we end with a request from a botanist. Miknaf Haharez is a grassroots collective dedicated to building an earth-based, radical, diasporic Jewish community in the UK. They're doing that through retreats, courses, youth camps, and lots of other things too. It's founded on the belief that connection with the land and time spent with the land is vital to Jewish healing, joy, and liberation, and for all of our collective liberation. We spoke to Samson Hart and Sarah Moon, who begins here by telling us about the collective's name. It literally means edge or wing of the earth. And it's a collective that we set up in the last couple of years to foster a deeper sense of connection to the land amongst the Jewish community in the UK. And in particular, to really build relationship and identity and cultivate belonging on these lands where we are, which happens to be the UK, could be wherever you are, as an alternative to nationalism and you know, building a homeland somewhere else, but to really affirm belonging where you're on and to, you know, reconnect to these like amazing rituals in the Jewish tradition, which, you know, have been made portable over the years through displacement and dispossession from lands, but still have this like deep core of earth-based ritual at their heart. So kind of gathering Jewish people who are called across those, I guess, specific pieces around diasporist wanting to be in relationship with the land that we're on and be in deep connection with the lands spiritually here and hold Jewishness and love for these lands in one place usually around a particular festival and the festivals are full of beautiful opportunity to to connect in with agricultural moments and the seasons we began just as a zine project we gathered around the festival of Shavuot, the first fruits harvest in May, June. And we gathered during lockdown. We couldn't do that in person. So we invited a conversation of poetry and writing and artwork around radical and land-based Jewish identity here. And over the years, we've been doing retreats. I think this year is the first year we're doing like a lot, maybe. And we're planning to do another zine, but also we're doing this kind of online series around diasporism. So kind of asking like what that word really means and also how that's kind of transitioned over time and how it might offer a different way of relating to the lands that we're on. And also to help build kind of Jewish relationship with land across different diasporic experiences as well. As well as like, you know, connecting Jewish community, like, you know, back to land, especially amongst people who might feel disconnected or in urban areas. We're also wanting to support and connect those in the Jewish community who might be growing already, who might be farming, who might be on the land, who don't necessarily bring that aspect of themselves to their work or who might not be aware or might not be bringing some of the particular um, Jewish wisdoms and customs around 
food and food growing, you know, and a big part of our inquiry over the last couple of years has been exploring like, is there a Jewish land justice? What could that be? You know, and a big part of that is this idea of Shemitah, which is the one in every seven years sabbatical for the land and the people that was, you know, born out of the ancient Jewish farming culture and offers so much wisdom and insight into a Jewish food and land justice, which incorporates and integrates all the elements of, you know, social, ecological, economic, environmental justice, and knows that you can't separate them out. It's not something I grew up learning about in my Jewish school, but actually it's a big piece of my Jewish identity as I tend land, as I grow food. And we want to share some of those wisdoms, you know, with people in the wider food and farming movement and particularly in the food and land justice movement. Did your interest in land and food production come first or did you get into that out of an interest in what your Jewish identity means to you? I guess I've been asking questions about belonging for a long time. I was raised with a food culture and hospitality but it was very detached from the land. I grew up in quite an urban setting. It was like suburban setting and and there wasn't that connection to the land. And in the Jewish settings that I was in, it was definitely not present. But I did feel a sense of connection to nature and eventually like through some other route came to the land and actually being in relationship with, with these lands like pushed me into questioning about my own ancestral traditions and my own ancestral stories and how what it might mean to belong I guess because I, I started feeling a sense of connection and belonging through being in relationship with the earth I was deeply longing for ways of feeling like I belong here and so actually going back to my own Judaism kind of I guess like unfurled this yeah this sense of yeah belonging where I am but also having ancestral stories and practices that can also hold me in that and so I think initially it came separately, like the connection to land came and and then the question around like, how did my Judaism fit here? But then actually since then, maybe like seven years ago, that those two things have been kind of hand in hand. But I suppose what's also important is that a whole part of that journey was that, you know, I was raised with quite like a political conservatism and political Zionism. And that was the story of Jewish identity and liberation or, or a large part of it. And so there was a whole journey of rejecting that like becoming politicized becoming aware of internationalist struggles and and what was happening in Palestine going to Palestine and meeting a an alive land-based culture there that you know I guess was so beautiful and also full of immense struggle and so I almost rejected my Judaism with that and it was a confused time and then I guess being back here now I want my Judaism to be part of my life and I want it to be something else to that part that had maybe been centralized so then I became interested in how all of these things like justice in an internationalist sense diasporism like belonging wherever we are and also having like a deep Jewish spirituality that is alive and and can bring a sense of belonging and purpose and meaning in these lands kind of came together but there's there is and was a bit of weaving of them all together again. The first thing that came to mind was actually when I was like very little, I would read the Dick King Smith books, Sophie's Farm, Sophie's Snail. I was obsessed with these books. And my first thing that I wanted to do when I grew up was to be a lady farmer, which had nothing to do with 
Judaism at all. It was this maybe very English sense of, I just knew that I needed to get up at dawn and wear wellies and be feeding, feeding animals. But there was none of that in my life growing up. I also kind of grew up in the suburbs. We did actually spend some holidays like staying at bed and breakfast on farms, which I really, really loved, but it never felt sort of like a real part of my life. It wasn't until I spent time in Israel when I was 16, I did a month long trip where we spent a significant bit of time on a kibbutz. And it was the first time that I'd been on the land and was like picking peppers. And I totally fell in love and wanted to do that all day, every day. So yeah, a lot of my formative experiences with land and learning about land work, food growing, tending land was, you know, caught up in the kind of like, you know, Zionist education and trips that I was part of with my youth movement as a teenager and a young person. And then as a student, when I was at university and wanting to learn more about the Palestinian experience and spending a lot of time in my summers in the West Bank, supporting farmers who were trying to tend their land, facing military occupation. And, you know, a similar story to Samson really, in that that was very disruptive and painful for a sense of Jewish identity when it came to the land. Because the examples that I was seeing of like Jewish sense of belonging to land felt oppressive and very militarized and based on, you know, settler colonialism and nationalism. And there was so much that did feel healing and sort of important and necessary for my Jewish self that had been so sort of flung from land and so severed from connection to growing food and and connecting to land. But of course, at the same time, it was like, well, this is just not okay. And that was what brought me to Adama, the Jewish Food and Farming Fellowship in the States, which was after a longer bout of time in Palestine when I was there for about seven months in 2014-15. I knew that I had to sort of heal this connection to land as part of my like Jewish journey and Jewish perspective. And, you know, thankfully something like Adama existed and really helped to tend the possibilities of like, yeah, a Jewish connection to land that was really you know, fiercely diasporist and liberatory and anti-oppressive. And yeah, from there, it's been about bringing that work to the UK and like just really insisting on a Jewish identity that can like be really connected to land. That's about like everybody getting to access it and everybody getting to belong where we are and to affirm connection to where we are. You know, I love the UK and the landscapes here. And sometimes, you know, growing up, maybe it would seem a bit of a backdrop and there's something very, yeah, important about grounding specifically where we are as like a way of tending trauma and, yeah, and just cultivating joy and belonging. I think the experience of doing the work that we're doing is really about healing and it's about healing relationship to land, relationship across our wild and multifaceted cross-diasporic communities that, that make up the peoples of these lands. And we want to like be building those solidarities and supporting 
marginalized people who aren't able to access land. And we just are so excited to bring our thread of that to the movement, to articulate our own Jewishness. And to do that is quite like a vulnerable thing to other ourselves in a public way. But it also feels like an act of solidarity to say like we're here and we have a, a culture and a history that we want to bring to this story of, of imagining food and farming that's just and a relationship to land that's just and not just just but healing and beautiful we continually are surprised to meet people who haven't heard of us but feel really seen in their jewishness for the first time maybe we would love anyone who feels kind of moved if you're jewish or otherwise you know by what we're trying to articulate and and build like to get in touch and we're so excited to connect with as many people as possible Pasture and Profit in Protected Landscapes is a free farmer-led program of farm walks, events, and webinars run by Pasture for Life. As part of the program, participating farmers interested in nature-friendly or regenerative farming practices can apply to be mentored for up to a year by a friendly farmer who understands the challenges and can support them as they shift to new practices. The program started with Protected Landscapes in the Southeast of the UK, but it's been such a success that it's now been extended to five national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty further north. Clementine just started her small farm in Essex. This is her first time farming for herself. So we caught up with her to learn how she's found the program so far. In the years that we spent setting up the house, I started to fall for the land and take an interest in it. Um, in a way that I wasn't expecting. And one of the things that brought me to that connection was Deborah, who who is running the program, the um, Pasture for Life program. Um, And she came here to to teach me about uh, natural dyes. And on that walk where we walked around my farm and looked at the hedgerows and what was growing in the field, she picked all sorts of things that we brought back to the house cooked up and used as as dyes for for wool and that was the first time really I understood that that the landscape that I was living in wasn't just something to look at and appreciate but something to connect to on a deeper level and how to look after that land and so I became interested in how to bring this farm back to life um, and what it would mean um, for the place. I became interested in regenerative agriculture, which seemed to me like, and still does, the most exciting thing I've ever heard of, and brought me into all sorts of worlds. And I kept having to rein myself back and think about this place. But my first thing was to go and work at a biodynamic farm called Tablehurst. And there I learned about cows and then fell for cows so when um, Deborah told me about pasture for life I was really excited during the mentorship program because what I'd like to do for this land is bring it back to life restore it and give it life through uh through grazing really so when I was set up with my mentor that was going to be my main my main objective but I I'm learning a lot more than that through him so I'm I spoke to Dan first on the phone Dan has Dan runs two organic mainstream organic 
dairies. Um, I think they they have 500 cows between those two farms. And so I was nervous to talk to Dan because one, I don't yet even have the cows. My own cows are arriving on Wednesday. Um, So at that stage in November, there were definitely no cows. And um, I thought, what what can I ask Dan? What could he even, why would he give me his time? But he did. And he gave me some very good advice that I'm still leaning on. And he's also visited the farm and talked me through like the tiniest details from like where to store the hay or, or whether the milking station that I've set up is in the right place or all sorts of things. Like one of the things he told me is always carry a spade and get to know your soils and the biodiversity on your farm now, because in five, 10 years time, when you're telling the story of your farm, you can look back on those days and, and, and what you noticed then. And the other thing he said to me was that small scale, the small scale that I'm at is very complex or can be very complex. And that's something I'm learning as I go. And it was just really good to hear that that was understood um, by someone like him. So he never kind of patronized me even or even made me feel like a, like I wasn't, you know, I hadn't even started yet, really. And his other great advice was that enjoyment is the key. So not just not just to choose the enterprises that you enjoy, but also like the way that you're milking, like, are you going to play music or what time are you going to be milking? You know, which fields do you want to see the cows when you're like all sorts of things that I do now think about in terms of like my own pleasure as well as getting it right. So he's been an amazing person to kind of call up. And recently when I did choose the cows that are coming, he said, just send me a video when you meet them, because then I can see whether they look about right. And sure enough, he said they they did. So I felt confident, you know, it's just like it's that sense of confidence along the way that as a first time farmer, I I really need. (laughs) It's funny, like looking back on notes from a year ago, how many things I thought I would try out, you know, everything, just like do everything. And and I find with regenerative agriculture, there are so many different practices and so many ways about things. And it's incredibly exciting and then deeply overwhelming and daunting. <laughs> so when I look back at a year ago, I was like, this is all going to happen now. And today, I'm feeling like, okay, two cows and a calf are arriving on Wednesday. And that is enough for now, because what that means, just those cows means a huge amount in itself. And I think that's what I'm learning. It's not just about how many enterprises or how big the business plan is, but but how you pay attention to even the, like the, just the very core of what you're doing and why you're doing it and to keep that in mind. And so I think with the PFL setting that context of how to look after the fields here and, and the hedgerows and to make that the main goal and to do it, to align myself with an organization that that cares so deeply about it means that I hope I will be guided along those lines for the next few years or the next decade or whatever it might be 
lots of people say to me, is this a commercial enterprise? Is this a business or is this a lifestyle decision? And I've always felt like I had to answer one or the other. And what did he think? And his response was, why, why in the world can't it be both? That was really nice to hear because I feel like it can be both. I definitely need this farm to be a business. It will be at its core a micro dairy, uh, 100% pasture, I hope, micro dairy. And alongside that will be other enterprises. So we've already set up a market garden here. And we have pigs and chickens, and all of these will hopefully be a closed loop that will feed into the business um, as a as a box scheme. But alongside that, I live here in the middle of this farm with my family, and we have to love it, and and it has to feed us and in our in our in our hearts and and everything else. So I think. It's both 100% kind of one can't be without the other. Leif Besweden grew up running around fields and woods looking for wild plants everywhere he could. It's a passion that continues today. He's written two acclaimed books, has just completed a PhD at Kew Gardens, and he's running training courses for the Species Recovery Trust. For his latest project, he's keen to meet up with farmers across the UK. I'm a botanist and basically spend my entire life trying to convince as many people as possible that our wild plants are awesome and completely worth our time and attention. Um, I think in society we have this mindset that plants are boring, but my experience does not tally with that at all. They are so interesting and they're so fascinating. And I think this mindset in society, yeah, this plants are boring thing just acts as this barrier to us learning about all the incredible things that they do and all the amazing stories that they have to tell. We asked Leif to tell us about a plant that we might find on farms in the UK that's maybe overlooked. Okay, I've got one. <laughs> um, so this is a plant that grows in ponds, which obviously once upon a time were a very, very common part of farms. It's called a uh, greater bladderwort, and it's one of our native carnivorous species. So it's literally a plant that eats animals, which in itself is just mad. It's a floating plant, so it floats in these ponds. Um, it's like got this 15 centimetres tall red stem with a yellow flower on it that sticks out the top of the water. Beneath the surface, you've got these sort of big uh, feather boa leaves, very feathery. And it doesn't have any roots, so it's not rooted in the ground. And so the wind can blow this plant around the pond. It's kind of like a botanical jellyfish. So it like just moves around, hoovering up all these little insects in the water. But the way it does that is just completely mad. So within those leaves, they have these little kind of pea-sized bladders, um, which are called bladder traps. And basically they... Uh, they pump out everything within these traps. So any water, any silt, any bits of insects, any air, the whole thing goes. And so it creates this little vacuum within the trap. Um, and it's kind of like a lidded pot and it's got two little hairs at the entrance. So a little aquatic insect, let's say a water beetle, 
is wandering this beautiful leaf. It's a very sunny day. It's having a lovely time. All these what look like air bubbles around it, but actually these these traps. And this beetle will nudge two of those hairs outside one of the traps, at which point the trap will open. Uh, that vacuum needs to be filled, so the water rushes in, taking that insect with it. And so within, it's literally within a thousandth of a second, this all happens and the trap snaps shut. It's the fastest known movement in the plant kingdom. You watch videos of it and it's, even if you don't blink, you still miss it. It's just so, so quick. So the beetle has no idea what's going on. Um, but once it's in the trap, the uh, the trap is sort of lined with bacteria in the same way that our own intestines are. And those bacteria start breaking down all those soft, fleshy, juicy parts of the beetle into this like beetle soup, which it then absorbs through the walls of the trap, uses those nutrients to grow. And within half an hour, it's pumped everything out again and, and reset itself. I just, you know, people are wandering around thinking that plants are boring and they don't know about bladderworts. And it's just, it breaks my heart. And it's something I really want to change. I grew up just outside of Salisbury in Wiltshire and there's a lot of arable farming going on around there. And I spent a lot of time wandering up and down the field margins, looking at the unusual arable plants that like cultivation and will grow on the edges of these fields, particularly ones that like the chalky soil. One of my most memorable encounters from doing that is finding a very common species called scarlet pimpernel. It's got five red petals, very low growing. It's one of these species that can respond to changes in atmospheric pressure, to light levels, to temperature. And so I was sat, I think, just eating my lunch on this field margin, looking at these plants, and I suddenly noticed that these flowers were closing up. And I thought, that's kind of weird. But within 10 minutes, it had started to rain. And then I remember going back and learning about this, that, yeah, these plants basically detect the changes in light levels and temperature and things just before it rains and they close their flowers to protect all their you know, pollen and stuff in the middle. I just remember sitting there watching this thing happen in front of my eyes and just being like, I can't believe. Again, like, we go through life thinking plants are boring, but they, they do things all the time. They're constantly like, you know, they're living creatures. Um, they're doing all the same things that animals are doing, just not at the same pace, unless you're a greater bladderware. It's just, I'm so aware of the fact that they're so fascinating and they have all these amazing ways of living their lives while being rooted to the spot and actually just experiencing a plant just doing its thing, just quietly, you know, not wanting any attention or anything like that, but just doing its thing was a really, really special uh, encounter and learning about that plant. Most of the grassy fields that we see in the country are pasture uh, for, you know, dairy farms and, and cattle and all sorts of different livestock. What I notice when I'm, you know, perhaps walking across one of those fields is that there are very few species. It's largely things like perennial ryegrass or like, yeah, a couple of grass species. I could maybe count the number of different plant species on on my fingers. What I would love to see is more fields that are far more species rich and, you know, that provide so much more, I think, personally, you know, a 
having that broad diet is such an important thing for the health of um, us, for health of health of animals. So I would love to see species-rich grasslands being grazed. Things like you know buttercups and samphoin and various vetches and peas and things that would sort of get things going, and then over time other species would come in as the fertility in the ground drops which for wild plants is a good thing because it sort of levels the playing field and makes sure that no one species can dominate then you'd start getting other things arriving and each of those different species would bring something else some other benefit to to the land and the livestock in front of us now we've got this like big field of buttercups and it's yellow um if you yeah, <laughs> sit up straight um it's amazing and i think yeah the beauty of of wildflowers is like the most obvious thing about them when they're growing on mass like that it really is something special and it kind of reminds you of what the land would have looked like well certain bits of the land would have looked like at one point in our past particularly just before the second world war uh, or before yeah before the wars when there were a lot more hay meadows and things around where farmers were using them, you know, to graze livestock and they would actually, you know, leave it to grow during the spring and summer and then cut that for hay over the winter for their livestock. And so, yeah, you'd get fields just full of wildflowers during the spring and summer. Amazing to look at, amazing for nature, amazing for the plants themselves delicious for the livestock over the winter because obviously they've got loads of different species all of that um you know the health benefits of having a, a broad diet is is uh, very well documented so like it wouldn't have been you know eight thousand years ago uh, there would have been small pockets of, of grassland but obviously there's a lot more a lot more woodland back then i'm talking like um pre-second world war when a lot of those were were ploughed up and converted to intensive agriculture yeah so it's nice to see fields that are still used and managed in that way in that more traditional way i'm currently writing a book that looks at the way we use our land here in the uk and basically looking at the ways that we can bring plants back into these places because as a botanist it seems just unbelievably obvious to me that if we just look after our wild plants then everything else will be absolutely fine you know look after the building blocks of the ecosystem and the stuff that feeds on the plants will be fine and the stuff that feeds on those will be fine and it just feels like it's really sort of sustainable way of looking after nature and obviously so much of our land is farmland i think it's like it's like 70 percent of the uk is is farmland so yeah i've been trying to find farmers who are willing to talk to me about what they might already be doing to look after the wild plants growing on their land would you be interested in helping leif with his research if so he's keen to speak with you so www.leif b e r s w e d e n dot com. There is like a contact bit on the website. Um, so yeah, that'll send an email to me. We're grateful to those of you that support us and allow us to bring these stories every month. 
Even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. So if you'd like to become a supporter, you can visit patreon.com forward slash pharmarama. This episode of Pharmarama was made by me, Joe Barrett, Abby Rose and Katie Revel. A big thanks to the rest of the Pharmarama team, Dora Taylor, Olivia Oldham, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Lucy Fisher. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett.